Good morning, everyone. The Lord be with you. One Saturday morning, as I was uh, in catechism or confirmation class in my youth, our pastor began the class by asking the question, what is grace? It's a word that we read in scripture, that we hear in sermons, that we sing in the songs of the church. I was a quiet kid, but that particular morning, there must have been a little bit of spunk in me because I decided to answer the, I decided to answer the question and uh, I, knew, I knew the answer he was looking for, but that's not the way that I answered it. When he asked the question, what is grace? I blurted out, grace is my grandmother. That is her name. And, uh, but also uh, one from whom I experienced grace. The defining word that we're looking at this morning is grace. We use grace to describe many things in life, right? Uh, Well-coordinated athlete or dancer. Good manners. Beautiful or well-chosen words. The prayer before a meal. Expressions of kindness and mercy. And even the avoidance of a penalty when a bill is late or a library book is overdue. Grace is one of the most important words in the Christian vocabulary, and it appears again and again in the Bible, along with synonyms like mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, even forgiveness. The scripture lesson this morning is one that comes uh, to my mind when I think about the word grace. And as I read it, listen to it, uh, it, perhaps it'll be familiar words to you as well, or at least part of it might be. And you'll hear the word grace mentioned three times in this passage. I'm reading Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This passage of Scripture begins where we left off last Sunday with our discussion about sin. It reminds us that we are by nature dead in sin and transgressions, objects of wrath, that we are at odds with God. But, Paul says, and anytime you have a but, anything that comes after that but is always the more important statement, right? So Paul says, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, another word for grace, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And then he says, it is by grace you've been saved. And then he repeats himself in verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace saves. 
Grace is a gift of God. Grace is the unmerited love and forgiveness of God. Grace produces good things in us. I mentioned John Newton the past two Sundays and mentioned him again this morning. The one who late in his life said, I remember two things very clearly, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Newton wrote what is arguably the most well-known hymn in the world, Amazing Grace. I've seen that hymn transform unsavory places into sacred ground. By that I mean being in a pub or a tavern and somebody sings Amazing Grace by karaoke and suddenly the place is transformed into church. And I think the reason is because there's something about grace, just the idea of it, that captivates the human heart. We are hungry for it. There's something in us that knows that we need it. Protestants credit Martin Luther, the reformer, with restoring grace in all of its truth and power. Sola gratia, by grace alone, is one of the capstones of the Protestant Reformation. We are not saved by works, not by what we do, but by the grace of God alone. So what is grace? As I said, it is one of the most important words in Christian vocabulary. It is a way of talking about the sheer beauty and bounty of God. The simplest definition I know is this. Grace is the undeserved mercy, the unmerited and unconditional love and forgiveness of God. Grace reconciles opposites, human sin and divine holiness. Grace bridges the gap. God loves you not because you are good, but because he is good. To show grace is to extend favor or kindness to one who does not deserve it and can never earn it. Oh, how our world needs grace today. From God as well as from one another. Grace stoops to wash feet. Grace descends to be in solidarity with sinners, with the marginalized, the outcast, the oppressed. Grace is a father running to meet a wayward son and putting a robe on him and a ring on his fingers and on his finger and then celebrating his return. Grace is the sinner welcomed at the table. Grace is Peter reinstated after denying Jesus three times. Grace is God coming near, God in human flesh. Grace is God's invitation to partner with him in his work in the world. Grace is God's equipping human agents to be difference makers. Grace, moments of grace, are those transcendent and fleeting moments of great joy, deep love, and surprising beauty that are a foretaste of glory. In a word, grace is amazing. Amazing grace. You know, grace seems too good to be true, doesn't it? And I think Satan sometimes whispers in our ear that God could never love you, that you've wandered too far, that you are alone in your sin, that your sin is different and unpardonable. Grace has limits, and you are beyond the reach. There are grace killers in every church, in every denomination. They are rigid, legalist, joyless, slow 
to forgive, stingy with grace, do not listen to their voices. God's grace is infinite. I sort of wish I had a Scottish brogue. Grace is greater than our sin. Grace is greater than our need. Grace is God's steadfast, overflowing, faithful love that comes to us freely and generously, without strings. Grace is unmerited and it is free. Grace is sufficient in all our need. The Apostle Paul discovered this for himself in his own struggles. What he called his thorn in the flesh, whether it was a physical ailment or whether it was a besetting sin, Paul prayed, pleaded with God to take it away, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is all-sufficient, more than sufficient. The river of grace that flows from God is not diminished or depleted as it goes forth but is abundant, flowing, free, and sufficient. In fact, the image, and I think it's in Ezekiel, that image of that river flowing from the temple, that river of grace, as, as, it, it, goes, as it goes forth, it gets wider and deeper. We are invited to stand in the flow, to allow grace to wash over us in the water of our baptism, in the promises and assurances of God's Word, in the sacrament that is the means of grace, in the pouring out of His Spirit into us, in God's mercies that are new to us every day. Proverbs 3.34 says that God gives grace to the humble. Don't resist it. Don't reject it. Just receive it with gratitude. In his book, Amazing Grace, or uh, uh, Grace Awakening, rather, in his book, Grace Awakening, Chuck Swindoll, uh, gives four practical expectations that you can anticipate when you begin to get a firm grip on grace. When you begin to get it, these are the things you can anticipate happening for you. First, you can expect to gain a greater appreciation for God's gifts to you and others, whatever those may be, salvation, life, laughter, beauty, music, friendship, forgiveness you'll have a greater appreciation of God's gifts in your life and the gifts that others have. Second, you can expect to spend less time and energy critical of and concerned about others' choices. You become less petty. You will allow others room to make their own decisions in life, even though you may choose otherwise. Third, you can expect to become more tolerant and less judgmental. You'll cultivate authentic faith rather than endure a religion based on superficial performance. You will find yourself so involved in your own pursuit of grace that you'll no longer lay guilt trips on those with whom you disagree. And fourthly, you can expect to take a giant step toward maturity. Your world will expand because that is the nature of grace. Your mind and your heart will enlarge. You will see things in new ways. One cautionary note about grace, because people get a little nervous when grace gets preached too much. Luther got criticized for that, and people down through the ages uh, have as well. 
Grace is free, but it is not cheap. And no one articulates that better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is what he wrote. Cheap grace is the enemy of the church. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Baptism without discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace, he said, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. End of quote. It is true, grace is risky and dangerous. And when you preach it, when you preach it well, when you preach it in all of its truth and purity, some will inevitably misunderstand it, misrepresent it, take it for granted, but you still need to preach it in all of its truth and beauty. Grace is risky and it's dangerous. And some will use it as a license to go on sinning. What costs God so dearly, however, cannot be cheap for us. We live in response to so great and so costly a gift. Grace actually produces in us gratitude. Grace changes our minds and our hearts so that we don't want to go on sinning. Grace actually works in us the will and the desire to act according to God's good purpose. It's another reason why I think it needs to be preached and it needs to be grasped. We don't need to be afraid of it. It's the very thing that changes us. Grace, grace is so amazing. Grace is so life-giving. Grace is so inspiring and, and regenerating that we need to be reminded of grace. There are wonderful stories of grace. I think of the, the, the story of the prodigal son in the Bible. I, I, I trust that you know it well. It's one of the most well-known stories in Scripture. It's one of the most inspiring and uplifting stories. It is a story of grace. This, the wayward son who squandered all, of his, all that his father had given him and finally comes to his senses and decides to go back home, the father's been waiting for him, watching for him. When the father sees him coming on the horizon, the father shames himself by running to his son and he puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger and he kills the fattened calf and celebrates his son's return. Do you remember the reaction of the older brother? He's a grace killer. He doesn't get grace. He doesn't extend grace. And yet the father is gracious with him as well. There are other stories, of course, outside of Scripture, stories of grace. I, I think of uh, Les Mis, the story, the, the musical. It's a story of grace. Uh, Chocolat, another uh, story of grace. It's a wonderful film to watch coming up in the Lenten season before Easter. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's a story of grace. There's another one that I would mention, a story that was written by Karen Blixen, who is also the author of Out of Africa. She wrote under the, uh, under the pseudonym of Isaac Dennison. She wrote a story titled Babette's Feast that became a sort of cult classic when it was turned into a film in the 1980s. It is a story not only about an exquisite and extravagant meal prepared by Babette, who is this famous chef from uh, Paris who's come to live in this bleak uh, fishing village in Denmark, and they don't even know her story, and she, she prepares a meal for the people that she's been living with and, and working among uh, for 12 years. 
And they live such bleak, dour lives that they can't even begin to grasp the enormity of the gift that she has given them in this feast. The cost of it and, and, the, and the, uh, just uh, the exquisiteness uh, of this meal. But there is a guest there that day of the feast, uh, a general who'd come from Paris who had eaten in the restaurant where Babette had once worked. And uh, he stands to give a toast because he is stunned by this meal. And uh, he is, his audience, as he stands to give this toast at the meal, his audience was a group of dour Christians, a, a sect of Lutherans who lived in a small, gray, ugly fishing village in Denmark. They heard sermons of grace every Sunday. But during the week, the rest of the week, they tried to earn God's favor with their pieties and renunciations. The general said, again, they're at this meal. They, they can't even allow themselves to show their joy and delight at this meal because that's the way they live their lives. But the general stands and he says, we have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe. But in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite, limited. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with, the confidence, with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. May our eyes be opened to grace that is infinite and may you receive it in joy and gratitude God's grace, my friends, is sufficient. It is sufficient for you. It is sufficient for me. It is sufficient for all. May that grace produce in us good things that redound to God's glory and our neighbor's good. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Let's pray. Eternal God, we come before you humbled by your grace and the gifts that we have been given. We are painfully aware of the challenges facing our nation. As we remember Martin Luther King Jr., we pray for justice to come down like a mighty river. As vaccines go out, we pray for an end to the pandemic. As we inaugurate a new president, we ask you to bless your servant, Joe Biden, with wisdom and courage to face the future that demands no less from him than his finest hour day by day. As a nation graced with diversity, we acknowledge the burden of destructive divisions. We pray, open our hearts and minds to the unity and connectedness of all humankind. Grant us grace toward each other. Holy and immortal God, be to president and people alike a beacon of light and love. Bless this nation and bless the church with the unity that is your gift and your challenge. Amen.